Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, returning guest. This will be his fourth episode with William Ramsey Investigates. His name is Robert Frederick, and his podcast is The Hidden Life is Best. you got to go check it out. Really great research. Uh, the subtitle of the podcast is Francis Bacon and the Gnostic English Empire. And he's just put out two episodes recently about a very important play, maybe one of the greatest plays ever written, Hamlet, and all of the elements in there. And so I listened to his two episodes. I kind of went through the um, old Hamlet online on YouTube and uh, just watched some clips and stuff just to kind of reacquaint myself. It had been a while. I haven't really watched it since I was in my early 20s, but you know I'm familiar with the line of it. But uh, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of very interesting stuff in this play. It's one of the longest plays written by Bacon Shakespeare. But uh, oftentimes it's edited down into a smaller, watchable version. But like anything, and how how complex these plays are, and how layered they are, is really astonishing, and how erudite they are. And there there's a reason why they're still referenced. These plays are referenced to this day. But Robert Frederick, yes. we'll talk more about that. So welcome back to the show, Robert. Hello, William. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. People who haven't didn't hear our other three talks, can you just do an uh, overview how you got interested in the subject of Bacon as Shakespeare and what led you to up to Hamlet? Uh, sure. Well, I was kind of zeroing in on the English Empire as the source of the world's ills after a lifetime of wondering, why is the world so messed up? And then one day, I had this astonishing synchronicity around Francis Bacon. I, I do it. I t tell that story on episode seven or eight of the podcast. And I thought, I've got to look into Francis Bacon. Synchronicity was so crazy. And I had heard, you know, the rumors about Shakespeare not being the author of the plays. Anyway, I started getting biographies of Bacon and. The evidence that he is Shakespeare is overwhelming. That would be episode 10 of my podcast where I go into the details. And the more I looked at Francis Bacon, the more astonishing it is what he accomplished because he's the father of modern science. He's the philosopher of modern science. He's one of the world's all-time greatest lawyers. He was Shakespeare, or what I prefer to say, ahead of the Shakespeare project. He was a master of espionage. He was right up there with Francis Walsingham and William Cecil and Robert Cecil, creating the all-time greatest you know, spy network. They were all spies at the time. You get sucked into this whole Tudor London, uh, modern England, early modern England, they call it. It's just a fascinating period. You know, It compares with Florence of Da Vinci and Paris or, you know, the great, Athens. <laughs> it's just it's just an incredible fifty to hundred years there, and and out of it came Shakespeare. And instead of just saying, "Oh, Bacon wrote Shakespeare, and he had to stay hidden because he was, you know, an aristocrat," I was like, "No, why did he write Shakespeare, and why did he stay hidden, and what do the plays mean?" And there's ten history plays. And they're all well-known in terms of Shakespeare scholarship now, modern Shakespeare scholarship, that they're all basically propaganda for the Tudor regime. 
And one of the many subplots in Francis Bacon's life, uh, the circumstantial evidence is quite overwhelming that he was the secret son of Queen Elizabeth I. So he was a Tudor royal. And that partially informs his intense um, ambition. He had just incredible ambition. And he was also extremely precocious. And that was noticed when he was young. And the aristocrats in England were extremely well-educated. And his you know, putative mother was one of the most highly educated women in the kingdom. His father was second or third ranked powerful person in the kingdom. He was related by marriage to William Cecil, who was the most powerful person in England besides Queen Elizabeth. So he was positioned perfectly to be whatever he wanted to be. And uh, apparently, you know, rumors are he read every single book in England by the time he was 18. He dropped out of college at 15. So his life story is just incredible. And he began his life as a spy at 15. And uh, I think had this underground reputation, they purposely already were damping down like how incredible he was. But he was known to have this unbelievable memory. And, um, you know, you just start digging in and you find this whole subculture of information about Bacon. There's been a Francis Bacon Society since like 1850 with a journal, three, sometimes three, four times a year. And around 1910, 1920 was sort of the peak of Bacon as Shakespeare. And Mark Twain wrote a book, uh, Is Shakespeare Dead, that you read, William, yeah. uh, read on your show. It's really funny. And he'll convince you that William Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. And since then, the evidence that Bacon wrote Shakespeare, there's just, just so much evidence that Bacon wrote Shakespeare. And of course, the problem becomes that this is all just like too much information between the origin of the British Empire, the origin of the Americas. Francis Bacon was involved in that, the legal angle. And then the real kicker is that according to more than a few people, Francis Bacon organized modern Freemasonry, which is all by itself an astonishing achievement because it's the most successful secret society of all time and, and, and spans the globe and is a key, a key part of the success of the British Empire. So I think between Shakespeare science and Freemasonry, Francis Bacon is the father of the English Empire as well. And then bring it to the modern age, I feel like the English Empire is also the Great Reset and really push this vaccine mandate, COVID, COVID madness, and this uh, kind of new religion of scientism that's encroaching on our freedoms. So I think it, I think what Francis Bacon started is has come up right to the present day, and that's one reason I'm so inspired to continue this work. Where sometimes it feels like, well, I'm I'm involved in this play that's 400 years old. <laughs> But uh, it's it's also fascinating to me that I you know I just I'm going at it and Hamlet's a very very interesting play very complex play but I think I've uncovered an enormous amount of nihilism and Gnosticism and uh, you just did a show on Program to Kill uh, referencing the great Dave McGowan and I think 
Macbeth is obviously programmed to kill by the witches who I expose as intelligencers, which is what they were called in those days, as, as a spy network. And uh, it turns out that Hamlet has astonishing similarities to Macbeth in terms of the shape of the play. So I'd like to tie it into the, the Dave McGowan modern, yeah, modern treatment. I think that's where it started. And the whole entertainment as uh, social conditioning, I think, started in earnest with Shakespeare. So it's a lot. Right, and they both see kind of uh, witches or apparitions. That's really the beginning of the whole narrative, right? Yeah, they both. They're both, uh, let's see, I have it written down. Both Hamlet and Macbeth, a supernatural presence urges the protagonists to commit murder. Protagonists both waver, but they both eventually commit the murder demanded by the supernatural. Multiple murders are committed in both plays by both protagonists. Like Hamlet murders three people, not counting Ophelia, who drives to suicide. Uh, both female protagonist counterparts commit suicide. That would be Lady Macbeth and Ophelia. Both protagonists are then themselves murdered. Um, both plays include ghosts. And finally, a conquering foreign army invades both protagonist country and in the final scene takes over the country. And they're both related to Norway. Macbeth is fighting Norway at the beginning of Macbeth. And Norway conquers Denmark at the end of uh, Hamlet, which is, I don't know how important that is, but uh, Bacon was really involved in history, English history. And, uh, you know, the Normans and the, the Vikings and all that probably figure into his, his uh, picture of things. But it's, I don't know if that's ever been pointed out before. It must have been. But there's, there's such strong similarity there between those two plays. And the Fordenbrass angle of the conquering army rarely gets seen in Hamlet because the play is four hours long. So the Fordenbrass subplot always gets cut. But his name is mentioned uh, before Hamlet, I think, in the very first scene. He's mentioned throughout the play because he's marching through Denmark and he's going to Poland. He's fighting and he represents like the warrior spirit as opposed to Hamlet's kind of milk toast, not sure of himself, not sure what to do. Even Hamlet discusses Fordenbrass as someone who can take action. And at the end of the play, not to give it away, but uh, as Hamlet's dying, he he sees, he says, ah, Fortinbras has my dying voice. And uh, just like in Macbeth, where the English army takes over Scotland, a conquering army takes over Denmark. So, and so in a way, I see them as chaos agents. And uh, some dark force urged this chaos on. And you could just say it's evil, but it's also, in terms of Macbeth, it was set up so that the English army would invade Scotland. I think that's pretty clear. And England comes in at the last minute is mentioned over and over again near the end of, of Hamlet because Hamlet just got back from England and he encouraged England to kill Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So the Hamlet play does get, get very complex and there's a whole history of Hamlet criticism that's really interesting. 
but it is considered by some, including Harold Bloom, America's favorite literary critic. He just died very recently. Kind of worshipped Hamlet as a play and worshipped Shakespeare as a playwright, almost to an absurd level. But he did uh, see, he edited a book or saw a book to be edited of the history of Hamlet criticism or writing about Hamlet. That's, That's quite fascinating. And real criticism of Hamlet didn't begin until the 20th century. But Harold Bloom, even though he did say Hamlet cannot love, thinks Hamlet was the smartest literary character of all time and, quote, as charismatic as Jesus and King David. Wow, that's pretty bold. (laughs) It was really this bizarre level of Hamlet worship and Shakespeare worship, which is what you find. I mean, the importance of Shakespeare to our culture and the whole English-speaking world is really hard to gauge and, and hard to imagine. So, you know, Bacon was just extraordinarily successful doing what he set out to do in the first half of his life. It's just remarkable. Yeah, the achievements are off the charts. Off it's just the greatest the achievement. And I, you know, there are stories about him. Like he was, uh, he had parties, like dinner parties and things like that. So he was, he was prying it. Who was his best friend? It was John. No, it wasn't John. It was Ben. Uh, ben Johnson. Ben Johnson. So he was draw, probably drawing in this talent pool. Oh yes, uh, to put all this stuff together. Yeah, like yeah. great talent pool. There were huge. Ta- there was huge, huge talent in England at the time. Great, great, great writers. People like. Sir Walter Raleigh wrote a book in prison called The History of the World. There's a guy named Thomas Harriet, who almost nobody knows, but he learned Algonquin. He was with Raleigh in, in Jamestown, which is a big thing Bacon did, was settle Jamestown. And Harriet also invented mathematics that are still used today and was the first person to use a telescope to look at the moon. All kinds of stuff. Christopher Marlowe, we have Ben Johnson, Thomas Kidd. Marston and Hall, playwrights that are still played today, poetry and poets, they were extremely well-educated, really smart. And then the whole espionage angle, right. you know, the best spy network. And they were all spies themselves. They were always spying on each other and paying each other for intelligence and, and kind of plotting to take over the world. It started right there. I mean, the history of the last... 400 years, 1623 to 2023 is the growth of England, is the English empire. And a lot of people are kind of hip to this idea now. There's a guy named Richard Poe, Matthew Arrett, that the English empire is still the English empire. It's still functional. It's still powerful. It's it's still extremely powerful. It still rolls over all, owns all the land in the Commonwealth, so. And you'll notice with the COVID, the worst uh, lockdowns were Australia, Commonwealth, New Zealand, Commonwealth, Canada, Commonwealth, Scotland, England itself. They have extraordinary power. And they also initiated the Great Reset, according to some researchers. And Prince Philip was on the board of World Economic Forum. And, And Charles is pushing global warming like, you know, his hair is on fire. And it's just, you know, it's obvious another hoax, but global warming, global solutions, they're they're so intent on taking over the world. 
that it's, it's interesting to think like you can see that time robert right there at the beginning of 1600 england mm -hmm. before that time and after is remarkable Incredible. because it was really kind of a backwater was totally they were just uh people thought it was nothing worth fighting over or anything They're really not there was internal squabbles but it didn't have it didn't express itself like it did after bacon which is incredible the yeah everything yeah. Yeah, it all changed. It all changed with the Tudors. The Tudors came in, and uh, John D. and the kind of occult. Uh, Giordorna Bruno was there, and they kind of combined the occult with uh, Protestantism. They broke with the church. That was another incredible thing. And Henry VIII made himself head of the English church. So he was kind of like the pharaoh again. He's head of the army head of the country and head of the church. He was the spiritual leader of the country. And they, they pulled it off. They destroyed all the monasteries and, and, and divvied it up. And they had a genius for, you know, managing this semi-medieval structure and, and bringing it forward and fending off the Spanish and, and keeping their act together and avoiding any assassinations. You know, through James the First, who followed Elizabeth the First, was James the First, and then his son Charles lost his head. So there was a civil war. Uh, I think it was 1640s, around 20 years after Bacon died. There was a civil war, and Oliver Cromwell came in. He lasted 10 years, but then they restored the monarchy, and the English monarchy is the only important monarchy left in the world. They pretty much saw to it that all the rest were destroyed, and pretty much that was what happened in World War One. The Turkish Empire died, Austro-Hungarian, Russian, Spanish, I forget when they died, but they're kind of a non-entity. Or Netherlands. The Netherlands monarchy is intact, but they don't really have any power, but they were England's best friend. And all that stuff is fascinating, and it's a whole other other world of, of research. But all of this stuff branches out in so many directions that I find, you know, endlessly fascinating, especially in terms of, you know, world history and how the English pulled this off. And I think Shakespeare plays an enormous role. First of all, when you think about England, I really don't think you can spend more than a couple minutes without thinking of Shakespeare. Maybe I'm wrong. I have to ask people, but I would bet you Shakespeare would be one of the first 10 things anyone says about England. And you mentioned, uh, William, when uh, King Charles made his first address to Parliament, he named dropped Shakespeare within 30 seconds. Right, that's right. And as the Bard said about the first Elizabeth, you know, and she was a star or something, he just was meant by Bacon to be mythic. Bacon read the myths. He wrote a book about the myths called Wisdom of the Ancient. He understood how important myths were to human consciousness and to political consciousness and the identity of a state. Like he knew all of this stuff way before modern psychology. And he consciously created Shakespeare myth of a country bumpkin writing these great plays 
that the plays themselves became mythic. They operate like myths. They're so saturated in our consciousness. Once you kind of learn Hamlet, you'll see Hamlet's kind of everywhere. Macbeth is everywhere. A bunch of these plays are Romeo and Juliet, Othello. And he, he meant for that to happen. In fact, I just discovered a new book, Shakespeare's Troy, Drama, Politics, and the Translation of Empire as a National Myth. And, he, and I think uh, the psychological nature, like the intense nationalism of the English, has a lot to do with Shakespeare. Intense patriotism. As I mentioned, those history plays are all about how great the Tudors are, how important the Tudors are. And they're quite moving. If you've seen any of them, uh, like Henry IV and rouses the troops with the speech, and we band of brothers. Right. Henry V. Henry V. We, we happy few, we band <laughs> of brothers. Were he today that sheds his blood with me, yeah. be ne'er so vile, gentle his condition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. You know, there's nothing more powerful than words. And Bacon knew that he transformed the English language. Some people give him credit for that. They don't even think he was Shakespeare. They think because of his uh, book of essays and then his his later book, 1603, his books on science started coming out. Um, English was, you know, unformed. And they think even without Shakespeare, he transformed the English language. With Shakespeare, there's 1,500 new words Bacon invented, or his band of writers invented. I think he were a group of people involved in writing Shakespeare. I think it was it was a, a state secret. A bunch of writers were in on it. And that way, it almost protected the secret a little more. It wasn't just one guy secretly writing this stuff. Like, you know, the the Earl of Oxford fans kind of think he sat in his uh, his mansion all by himself writing these plays. It was a it was a group of people, which makes it harder to betray because you would be, in a sense, betraying just everyone involved in the project, which would be everyone, I think, from Queen Elizabeth, you know, to William Cecil to. Almost anyone of importance must have known about this because they kept it quiet. It's like the um, Manhattan Project. Right. You know, in a way, if it's bigger with more important people, it's easier to keep it secret. And why would you betray the plot anyway? What would you get from exposing it? There's almost nothing to expose. Not to mention, you'd probably be charged with treason. And suffer a hideous death, which is what they used to do back then. But it's almost like it's perfect for a guy to bacon to undertake because he knows everything about secret society. So he just formed his own secret society and put together this whole folio. Right? The whole folio dropped all at once, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like a masterpiece of mouth on masterpiece upon masterpiece. Yeah, a masterpiece upon masterpiece. Three yeah. three years before he died. So he rose to the pinnacle of power. Elizabeth, under Elizabeth, he did almost nothing. And that's one of the clues that he was Shakespeare. Because it's like, what did Bacon do until he was 43? It's like nothing. He, he was a lawyer, but he didn't practice law. He was the Queen's learned counsel. But that just meant, you know, 
she would talk to him once in a while. And he sat in Parliament, but Parliament met for like three weeks a year back then. He didn't write any books. He wrote he wrote the essays, ten essays. So between the age of fifteen and eighteen, when he he went to France as a spy and a diplomat, to forty three, there's almost nothing credited to him. But those are the years when the Shakespeare plays were being written. Most of them 1580s, 1590s. And then... Just <laughs> Elizabeth, the, corpus, the corpus of them seeded the world. The English language yes. and really went around the world. You went around the all, world. All the Commonwealth, right? All the Commonwealth. And then the Freemasonic Lodges. Freemasonry is based on theater, too. The initiations are all very theatrical, especially the third one. And they love theater, and they have theaters in their lodges, and they would put the plays on. And, of course, plays were so important back then. Obviously, there was no radio or movies. So people were always doing plays. It was, very, it was a very, very important thing. And it still is. Theater is still powerful. As I, as I found out, I just went to Central Park. They're doing Hamlet in Central Park right now. And to right. keep it uh, to keep it relevant, they they had an all black cast or a mostly all black cast. Here's a picture there. It's the grave digger scene, and the grave digger's white. There's Hamlet with the skull, and there's just another great great image, which is Freemasonic. The skull is a heavy Freemasonic symbol. And the director of the play, you see, put the uh, the Masonic floor tile on the stage. Right. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, so it really just, it's still there it is. There it is, like 400 years morphing, <laughs> yeah. going to a different location, different ethnicity, still speaking that English. And every every 10 years, a major movie star does Hamlet. You know, back in the 80s, it was Mel Gibson, Kenneth Branagh, 90s, Ethan Hawke, I think the Knots, Patrick Stewart just did it in England with a very famous English actor. They just always bring it back and, and put it before you. That's but like the, one of the big things of the actor. The actors, that solidis- solidifies their legitimacy is that they yeah, played Hamlet. They can like do Hamlet. Hamlet. Yeah, they can do Hamlet. And somehow we sympathize with Hamlet, but he actually does nothing good in the play. He murders three people. He pretty much destroys his mother. He has zero sympathy for his mother. He has zero sympathy for Ophelia. And when I first was looking at the play and watching the play, I thought, you know, Ophelia could have saved him. Like, love would have saved him. And Ophelia loved him. And he supposedly loved Ophelia. But one of the key scenes in the play is his, his brutal, brutal treatment of Ophelia who eventually goes mad. And I think that's one of the reasons people uh, feel compelled by the play, because it's such a pitiful, sad scene. You know, Ophelia goes mad and then later commits suicide offstage. And then she's brought back in the gravedigger scene, where suddenly Hamlet decides he loves her and fights her brother. So he destroys the grieving family's funeral to show his love for Ophelia, who he couldn't show an ounce of love before the play. And in the podcast, so number 11, I go through this in detail 
how the characterization of Hamlet makes no sense in the play. And the characters of many of them don't really add up. And this has been mentioned by people like Leo Tolstoy. You know, couldn't stand Shakespeare. Uh, the philosopher Wittgenstein would say, the characters aren't true to life. It, it's, it's not true to life. And that's what I've been finding as I've been digging in to Shakespeare, is that the plays actually aren't that great, but some of the characters are, and a lot of the language is. It's very compelling. It's very hypnotic. You're, you're pulled in by it. And then also, I think, I really think Bacon, because of his occult studies, and I think most of the occult is, is hypnotism, he knew that. He knew how to control people with language. And, and even though Hamlet's a jerk throughout the play, he suggested that he's a good person or he was once a good person. He was the, he was the shining star of the state, the glass of fashion, the honeydew words. And at the very end of the play, Horatio, who's a very nondescript character, is the one person Hamlet says he loves, which kind of has these homosexual overtones, like he can't love any women in the play. But for some reason, he declares his love for Horatio and then gets embarrassed while he's saying it. You know, at the end of the play, Horatio says, Good night, sweet prince. Uh, may angels sing you to your rest. Well, sweet prince. He hasn't done a single sweet thing right. the, the whole play. Complained. He <laughs> screamed. He screamed at the women. Screamed at the women. He, somebody. He, he kills his best friends, Rosa Kantz and Gildenstern, oh, yeah. without a second thought. He kills Polonius, Ophelia's father. And, he almost commits suicide. Yeah, he, he wants to commit suicide. Yeah. He wouldn't kill Claudius, but he doesn't want to kill him because Claudius is praying. And if he kills him while he's praying, his soul probably won't go to hell. So he wants to kill him in a way that will put his soul in hell. Like the most you know, <laughs> evil, right. yeah. which that did astonish critics. They're like, hmm, you know, how unchristian. And, and it was noticed how unchristian everything was, but... Somehow, people were still compelled to praise the play. But I also think, and this, this I don't have evidence for, but, you know, it was continually planted to, like, praise Shakespeare, build Shakespeare up. Shakespeare's a, could be, you know, it's Shakespeare's a, a state project, and it's part of our national image, part of our national myth. You know, write another article, write another book, put it up again, put the big stars in it. It, it was pushed, you know, like a Miley Cyrus hit would be put on right. the radio until, right. until, until you like it, you know? You know that thing where you hear a song 10 times till, oh, actually, I hated that song when I first heard it, but now it's not so bad. Maybe there's something like that has happened over the centuries because Shakespeare's constantly pushed on us. And I noticed that my son in high school just a few years ago was given a Shakespeare play to read. I think he read two or three of them. One of them's called Twelfth Night, which I took a quick look at, and I was like, oh, yeah, there's all this cross-dressing, applied homosexuality. Uh, the subtitle of the play is, is What Thou Wilt. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, what, what Thou Wilt. 
But the other thing I wanted to point out is that so if 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 Hamlet and Macbeth are assassins and Freemasons came out of the Templars, which is standard history, that's not flaky conspiracy theory. And the Templars were created, became the Templars we know today because of their association with the assassins. And the assassins were a real group, 12th and 13th century, Syria-based, fake Muslims. They pretended to be very devout, devout Muslims. But in fact, what they were, were assassins. And they, mind, they, they would had a method where they could mind control some of their members and send them out to mingle for years, you know, be at least like sleeper agents. So suddenly they would, they would assassinate, you know, the caliphate the caliph of some other country. And they, they created huge power for themselves simply through assassination. So in a way, this, these Shakespeare plays of Hamlet and Macbeth seem to point back to the assassins who the Templars took their structure from and in, in a sense became like them, kind of fake Christians who were really worshiping this idol Baphomet. And it was the assassins who said, nothing is true, everything is permitted. And Hamlet says, there is nothing good nor bad, but thinking makes it so in Hamlet, which to me was just a shocking statement. Nothing good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. That's a very extreme, nihilistic statement. You know, there's a big gray area in life where this is good and bad at the same time, but some things are good and some things are bad. I think everyone can agree on that except for extreme nihilists or Satanists, maybe. But there's a direct connection back to the assassins through the Templars, and the Templars became the Freemasons. And there's tons of Freemasonry in Shakespeare. Just tons of it. Right, it's remarkable. Well, Has go. anybody ever written a book like categorizing all the, the Freemasonry in Shakespeare? Yeah, there's a guy named Alfred Dodd, D-O-D-D, who was a Freemason, and he wrote a bunch of books. One's called Shakespeare, Creator of Freemasonry. And he'll go through a lot of the plays and point it out. And since that time, there's been even more. There's one masonic guy who pointed out all the freemasonry in macbeth that i i detail i think in uh, episode four of my podcast yeah and it's just there's just tons of it and it uh most you rarely find in a book on the history of freemasonry that francis bacon had anything to do with it but that was the power of his ability to hide himself and his desire to hide himself, and that being a precept of uh, some secret societies, which is learn to know all, but keep thyself unknown. Erect no monuments to attract public attention. And he took that to heart. And he even wrote about that. He wrote about simulation and dissimulation. You know, he wrote about hiding, pretending to be what you're not, pretending to be pretending not to be what you are. 
he uh, he knew exactly what he was doing every step of the way. He had just enormous, enormous confidence. And of course, he had enormous resources. And his whole life, the beginning of his life, it seemed like he was broke. He was always broke, broke, broke. That's the thing about Francis Bacon. Because he didn't have a job. But he had three or four places to live. And he always had a team of servants his entire life. He had a, he had a mansion, like close to... Uh, one of the one of the queens. Yeah, he was born right next to Whitehall in yeah. York House, and uh, then his the queen told his father, putative father Nicholas Bacon, build a mansion in in St Albans. St Albans is the site of Verulamium, Verulaminium, which was an ancient Roman town where Gnosticism was very prevalent, and St Alban is reputed to have brought Freemasonry to England. So they purposely made him associated with the myths of England and Freemasonry because I think the Tudors thought of themselves as the extension of England. And there are legends that the Britons were came straight from Rome. There are these, these different legends. I'm reading a book about that now. I'll do a whole section on that. But they had a kind of mystical connection to Rome, the way Rome had a mystical connection to Troy, and the way Virgil's whole poem was about Rome being an extension of Troy and Greece. Well, Bacon consciously brought Rome up to London. London's the new Rome. But then they even went to London as the new Jerusalem, and they they grabbed hold of uh, Judaism, but at the same time they're Gnostics, so they were repudiating Judaism. So it's not a simple, uh, logical world that they lived in. Gnosticism is like that. It's very syncretic. It it brings together bits and pieces of kind of everything, and it's constantly sh- shifting and reshaping itself, which is I think why it died out. Whereas you know, mainstream Orthodox Christianity settled on, you know, one Bible and, and you know, one kind of theology. With Gnosticism, it's crazy. I mean, it's just all kinds of crazy creation stories and after-death stories and strange magical rituals and practices that many of them are repulsive. And in one way, Gnosticism just died out. But it it stayed in this secret undercurrent that they can trace it. They can trace it all the way into the assassins, through the Templars, the Cathars in France, the Bogomils in the Balkans. It's uh, actually the concepts of precepts are around today. Some people have made the art. I think Lindsay made the James argument. James yeah, discovered it. He really discovered the Gnostic element of communism. Yeah. Communi- communism is Gnostic. A lot of the Gnostic sects preached a, a communistic doctrine and this equality. But really what it is is, is they want control because they have the special knowledge. Right. Only to a very few. And that's why they want to totally control everything. So on the one hand, they're rebellious and rejecting any rules like the Ten Commandments. Or God, right? Or God. God. They're actually fighting God. They think they're in a war with God. They're going to create their own utopia. It's Gnosticism. With their own thoughts, anything that comes out of their mind, they're going to create it. Beyond good and evil. 
that's exactly what's going on 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 a global scale right now. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a totally a rejection of God and an attempt to rewrite the laws. And they also have all this this mysticism about combining the male and the female, and they're neither male nor yes. female, and all this. That's very Gnostic current, too. very very current stuff going on is Gnostic. James Lindsay jumped on this about a year ago. He's done some amazing podcasts detailing it, where he combines it. It's Gnosticism and Hermeticism combined. Somewhere Satanism jumped in there. That's another area of research because they have a different cosmology, but their methods are pretty much the same. You know, destroy the existing order. Right. You know, new order out of chaos. Create chaos. Create a new order. And and steal the world from God. And Bacon pretty much says as much. He thinks the destiny of humanity is to conquer the universe. It's in his most famous book of uh, philosophy called Novum Organum. It just blows my mind that nobody's ever pointed this out. If a man endeavors to establish and extend the power and dominion of the human race itself over the universe, his ambition, if ambition it can be called, is without a doubt a wholesome thing and more noble. (laughs) A wholesome and noble thing. It's it's shocking. And now we have scientism. We have uh, artificial wombs, artificial intelligence. Start a planet on, start a civilization on Mars. And they kind of want to do away with women. So one of my themes of this last episode was hatred of women because the Gnostics, specifically this Ophite sack who were were serpent worshippers. And there's a few portraits of Elizabeth with a serpent on her gown. And they found a new one with a serpent kind of hidden in this painting. And originally it was painted with a serpent. And this was the one of the very first Gnostic sects called the Ophites, and they uh, they forbade intercourse between men and women. They encouraged homosexuality, and then they would practice abortion should a woman get pregnant, because that would be extending the domain of the demiurge, the evil god that created this planet. Right. That's how intensely they believed that. And people believe that today. It's Gnosticism has come back uh, yeah. publicly, and it was always there, hidden. James Lindsay has exposed that as you know, Marx was a secret Gnostic, and Hegel, Gnostic Hermeticist, and it's kind of hip and rebellious at the same time. It's totalitarian and dictatorial. So nothing about this stuff is logical. And nothing about Hamlet is logical. The play makes no sense whatsoever. But yet we still feel attracted to it. We still care about Hamlet somehow because of the language of the play. Pulls us in and kind of almost hypnotizes us that we don't really notice what's actually happening in the play. Like, he so casually kills Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. It doesn't really register. You don't see them killed. You never hear about it. There's no mourning. You sort of think they deserve it. 
because they were working against Hamlet. But Hamlet was purposely acting crazy and threatening people. Right. So it's really, really complicated and has spawned, uh, you know, centuries of debate. But at the core, I think you mentioned this before we went live, is, is there's just a lot of nihilism in the play, which kind of goes unnoticed. And it's very apparent in Macbeth. And I got to wonder if Shakespeare was the beginning of literary nihilism. And did he see this as a future? Was he kind of seeding unconscious ideas in us to make us easier to control somehow? Because at the end of the day, you know, if things are, if things are weak and unstructured, you want a strong ruler and a strong leader. And England has always had that. You know, they had just abject conditions. The poor were so poor there. It's a very rich country. But as Dickens brought out, you know, there's all this abject poverty and absolute worship of the sovereign. Incredible how they could pull that off. And if you see these TV shows about what it was like to be poor in Victorian England, it's just absolutely shocking. Yeah, just filth everywhere, mud, poor poverty, really rough. You get your nose cut off, ears <laughs> cut off in the streets, slashings, yeah. just like yeah. hyper violent, like incredible violence. Like meanwhile, super cheap. meanwhile, they were loved England and we're the greatest and let's right. take over the world and let's, you know, it was very, there was some pushback. I've heard recently there was some pushback against the empire, but. Well, one, of the, one of the so other similarities between Macbeth and uh, Hamlet is that these two plays take place in kind of antagonist to London, England's power, right? So Scotland and Denmark, and yeah. the leaders are corrupt. They're affected yeah. by witches. Yeah. They're not Christians. Yeah, you know. So there's a there's definitely good. a propaganda piece. It's another piece of that good propaganda. point. Very good point. It's definitely a subtle unconscious nod right to how great england is exactly these guys are fighting and poisoning each other and killing each other i got a question from sabrina she asked do you believe that james the first of england was a mason and did play bacon play a significant role in writing the king james bible yeah those are really good questions masonry went to scotland or the templars went to scotland and i do think it was being practiced in Scotland, definitely. There's just tons of evidence for that. Yeah, Sinclair Castle. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a whole area of research. I would love to go back and look Sinclair at... Church, actually. So. Yeah, the first tutor, uh, Henry Seven, who was from Wales. There was also masonry was still in France. So this whole undercurrent of masonry, there's, there's a lot of evidence, yeah, that that James Roslyn was, Chapel. Roslyn Chapel and James. There's a lot of rumors that he was already, yeah, a Mason. And he immediately promoted Bacon. I think Elizabeth was afraid to because she knew his power and she would not let him on the Privy Council. She wouldn't give him any position of power and he didn't have one. But he was immediately knighted by James. I think he wanted to be king. And I think if you know anything about the Essex Rebellion, 
which is too much to go into now. There was a rebellion very late in Elizabeth's reign. And this Baconian researcher I know says he thinks it was Essex trying to convince Elizabeth to make Bacon king. And I think Bacon wanted to be king. But then when James came in, which he saw as inevitable, I mean, you had to get the transfer of power. He immediately got married, which was a signal that he doesn't want to be king anymore. He married a commoner. And uh, that's a whole other story because it kind of shows what a nasty guy he was because he's homosexual, married this 13-year-old girl who had money, which he controlled. Nobody really knows much about them. Uh, he never wrote her a single letter his entire life. And then when she started an affair with one of his serving men, he tried to cut her out of his will and deny her any property. Nice guy. And then he, uh, you know, the great, the divine William, the great Bacon, the Rosicrucian who wants to elevate all of humanity, and which people think about Freemasonry too. It's there to make, to make good men better. Uh, she managed to hang on to the property. She refused to leave the house and uh, kind of still wound up, I think, as gentry, as, a, as Lady Bacon or something. I'm not sure. And I do think he played a significant role in polishing up the King James Bible. And there are some clues to that in, in some of the graphics. And also, if you look up Psalm 46, and Shakespeare, put in Psalm 46, Shakespeare, King James Bible. It'll blow your mind. It's a major clue. It's really weird. If you count 46 words, it's the 46th Psalm. Count 46 words from the first word, you get shake. And count 46 words from the last word, you get spear. So Psalm 46, 46, and 46, Shakespeare. And I think 46, 46, and 46 adds up to a significant number. And that's a whole other area Bacon was involved in was, was numerology, which is a big part of Kabbalah and Pythagorean symbolism. And I just don't have time for it. Yeah. yeah, I don't. And cryptography was... A, big thing he was into and everything he did he excelled at he just seemed to have a boundless capacity to learn and invent and create and to manage people it's just remarkable absolutely yeah, remarkable and to put the hidden messages in plays and know what they were going to do like you had to hide these hidden messages that that build up england that people, people don't notice. But he knew it would have an unconscious effect on people, I believe. I think he was very, very much in touch with that. And there's a scene in Julius Caesar. I'm going to do that very soon. After Julius Caesar is killed, I think it's Mark Antony makes a speech. Antony makes a speech. And the crowd is so angry, so angry. And with one speech, he turns the crowd 180 degrees and has them completely angry at somebody else. And they rush off as a mob and murder a poet, just poet. Hmm. It's incredible. He illustrates the power of rhetoric and language and words to, con to control an angry mob. 
It's incredible. And in a way, it's a symbol of the, the Shakespeare project as a whole. All right. I got another question from Joker. Do you think there's a connection with Bacon's Vault and the Oak Island mystery? There may be. And there's a great movie about that called... Um, what's it called? The Shakespeare Conspiracy. Decoding the Shakespeare Conspiracy about... Uh, the Norwegian writer who decides that Bacon was Shakespeare and he's a, he's a Freemason and he, he uses cryptography and numerology and decodes all the stuff, but he also knows all this other stuff about Bacon and he convinces, or he's talking to a PhD Shakespeare scholar about it. It's a beautifully made movie and he thinks so. And they go to Oak Island in the movie um decoding Shakespeare. Is it Alexander Lee Records? Is that right? Here it is. Cracking the Shakespeare Code. I highly recommend that documentary. It's very, very well made. Uh the Freemason Norwegian guy is very, very convincing, and the English Shakespeare's collar is uh, is very convincing. He's kind of in over his head. He's like, what? This guy's blowing my mind. Cracking the Shakespeare code. It's fantastic. And he winds up on Oak Island based on on clues he's uncovered from the first folio, the, the book you mentioned. I wonder how much of that is reverse engineered, like they were already on about Oak Island. So I think he knew that this this legend that the Shakespeare manuscripts were hidden on Oak Island. I think he might have worked backwards from that to then find the clues because it seems that part of the movie seems a little bit fantastical. But he did discover new things on Oak Island that he predicted he would find and he did discover them. And they're still looking for stuff on Oak Island. And he eventually last I checked on him he's like I can't I can't do this anymore. Cuz what happens is people People go down this bacon rabbit hole and they get, you know, completely obsessed. And the woman that started it, yeah, Delia Bacon, she you get completely consumed. Weird synchronicities start happening, like the one that got me into it, and it gets kind of mystical and magical. And it's also kind of disconcerting, you know, that that there are these these dark secrets. Macbeth itself, they say, is haunted, and you spend a lot of time. I found myself spending a lot of time on these plays. I get, you know definitely stirs up strange feelings in you because it's it's dark stuff hamlet is a very very dark play yeah there's all kinds of ponderings death suicide <laughs> i just all like all kinds of heavy duty like <laughs> philosophizing heavy. Yeah. yeah and there's nothing good nor bad but thinking makes it so Macbeth especially pulls the rug out from under you there's just like nothing of any certainty in that play it's pretty much the same with hamlet you know everyone dies at the end there's nothing, nothing sacred. There's a little bit of prayer. Hamlet's got a little bit more spirituality than Macbeth, which has like almost none. Nobody prays. Nobody asks for a priest. Hamlet, at least, the king tries to pray. He tries to get out of it. He tries to beg for forgiveness, but then he realizes, I can't. I can't. I still have my queen. I murdered my brother, and I, I have his wife. So I'm, I'm stuck. Hamlet never prays. Hamlet, they never talk up front about what's going on. It's all this 
yeah, philosophizing and self-doubt and anguish and yeah. yelling and screaming. It's very, he's kind of an anti-hero. I think Hamlet's he's an anti-hero. Anti he's absolutely an anti-hero, but he's somehow sympathetic. It's remarkable. Like he's put into difficult position, but he's a playwright, you know, like he's not like I'm going to follow my dad in glory on the battlefield. He's like, uh, yeah, he's a poet. He's a yeah, playwright. Yeah. He's an actor. He's kind of a mini bacon. Yeah. And trying to solve the problem. He makes a play out of it. Right. So he yeah. does a play. The play within a play. Confers, yeah. That's how he confirms that his uncle was the, actually was the malefactor. Right. Yeah, and it has the thing. The play's the thing. We're in. I'll catch the conscience. Yeah, Robert, we are at the hour mark. Is there anything you'd like to add, or where can people find your podcast? Uh, search for the Hidden Life is Best, and uh, the website, which I will be getting updated very soon. There's quite a lot of information to back up uh, what I say in the podcast. There are you know, footnotes and, and sources for what I say. Everything is sourced. I've made a couple mistakes. A couple of listeners have written in, you know, I made, I made little minor, little minor mistakes here and there. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of fascinating history. I try to make it entertaining and fun, even though it is pretty dark. We've got to stay upbeat. And stay positive, and I think uh, I think we can we can stop the empire. You know, they they keep rolling because they hid themselves. I think, you know, the U.S. set off that nuclear bomb, which is now back with Oppenheimer, and attention went to the United States from that moment on, and England kind of slunk away. But a lot of people think they're still pulling the strings are certainly the strongest voice pushing this war with Ukraine and Russia. They definitely want that to happen because they've been at war with Russia for 200 years. Right. And, it's, uh, it's something not the people that the people don't want. It's the elites. People don't, the care. Elites running, they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. The elites are really running the show. It's really kind of sad about England. Yeah. Like how they've under impoverished, control. Yeah. They've impoverished us all through that war. They probably benefit. Yeah. Their companies are the ones selling. Yeah. The bullets and the bombs and all that shit. Yeah, and then we get we get uh, you know crap, lousy roads, lousy education, lousy healthcare. So. Yep, they just hate Russia. And American defense contractors are making money, and we're in no immediate danger. But yeah, England England brought this war about, and I think they're behind the Great Reset. So yeah, it's check out the a, podcast. Good podcast yeah. And thanks a million, William. So hey, great thank to you. Talk to you. Likewise. Yeah, oh, let me go know see how things progress. If you're in New York, go see Hamlet in Central Park. Yeah. It's got a great opening. I think this director, uh, I wanted, to, I wanted to give him some props. Uh, Neil, what's his name? Kenny Leon. I think he tries to spiritualize the play. I think he starts the play with, with this Christian music, this kind of gospel doo wop. That he really tries to cleanse the play. And if he had kept Fordenbras in, he could have had Fordenbras be some kind of cleansing nature at the end but that's the end of my last podcast i i give a mini review of uh, hamlet in the park so i hope you like it yeah i definitely like listening to those two and i look forward to julius caesar it's my favorite in the corpus so yeah, definitely good. Be interested in talking to you about it awesome awesome robert frederick and the hidden life is best and this is gnostic hamlet thanks so much for your time thanks william bye take care stay there, stay there.